Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Do you ever think about death, my goblins and ghouls? My thoughts will often drift to the dark, grim place of the afterlife. Beyond having the typical concerns, such as coffin comfort, it goes without saying that one must ensure their final resting place is comfy and cozy with the softest of blankies. However, what I think about even more is what I will be remembered for, or for that matter, if anyone will recall my existence at all once I depart the living. Something that has often struck me is that I feel safer with the dead. As you know, my goblins and ghouls, those featured on this program only need to meet one criteria, and that is deceased. I think I feel most comfortable with the dearly departed due to their time already being defined. Essentially, they can't disappoint me. Their faults have been exposed and they are now appreciated for who they were. What they have done is all they shall do, or is it? Of course, one could say that some cadavers manage to reanimate and return to our consciousness, especially those that were within films and television. Even in death, one can still find a way to be very much alive. Oh, good evening. Good evening, Zachary here. <laughs> and uh, Henry the Hall, the, the werewolf of London, is. Seems a little frozen in time here, but he's, he's always hanging around, you know. <clears throat> Take a nip once in a while. Well, well, uh, we're gathered here this evening. Sounds like a funeral, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, we're, uh, we're about to witness some of these old kinescopes that have been uh, stuffed away in my closet for many, many low, low these many years, since uh, 58, 9, all in there, my 19 and 58, 59, so on. And, uh, Kinescopes, in case you have uh, forgotten or never knew the reason for their existence, there was no uh, videotape in the old days. And uh, used to aim a uh, film camera at a TV tube, and that's what you got, you know. <clears throat> and that's uh, the record they had of old, old television shows, of which I represent a certain, uh, uh, you know, portion of. And uh, <clears throat> back in Philadelphia, which is out that way somewhere, uh, I was uh, doing this uh, business of uh, introducing the introducing late night uh, horror movies known as Shock Theater. What a great name, Shock Theater! <laughs> oh my word! All from Hollywood, you know, and uh, black and white films that I was not allowed to see when I was a small uh, little monster. Uh, but uh, eventually, in, in my uh, which I think of as some many years ago, uh, I saw all these films, and so did you, a lot of you. And uh, this, uh, this first one was um, taken by a, a um, chiropractor or a doctor or something, some amateur guy who knew about uh, aiming a 16-millimeter uh, camera 
at a uh, at the uh, TV tube and sound of course he had sound so what he got was uh, the picture a little wavy little wavy there uh, because his antenna on the roof you know was not properly aimed at the TV station so on and anyway it uh, came off pretty well in the end you know uh, but uh, it showed uh, how we started this whole business of uh, introducing uh, late night scary movies on television aren't you glad <laughs> parents raised hell they raised hell they thought this would be a bad thing for children to see these horror movies in their own very own living rooms mind you and some kids were for forbidden to watch but they used to sneak downstairs <laughs> when mom and daddy were up doing other things in, in their locked bedroom you would go downstairs and, and hang out and watch TV <clears throat> well anyway uh, the um, videotapes, uh, when they did come in, and then there are other, there are four tapes we're going to show this evening, mostly about the intermissions where we were doing these marvelous ex experiments and fooling around with the commercials and all. Uh, when the videotape did come in, these big reels <coughs> of two-inch tape. <coughs> I've been <coughs> on a diet of popcorn here, and it's <coughs> there we go. <laughs> Crypt dwellers. Before we get to our main attraction, let's spend some time in the cemetery, shall we? Let's pay respects to our horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. Today we shall visit the tomb of the extraordinary Zachary. In 1957, Universal Studios released 600 of their pre-1948 films for television play. These movies were from a time when the studio's main focus was horror. The release of these films created a new sensation, the television horror host. Every local TV station employed a goblin or ghoul to host the program, which often would be referred to as shock theater. This term came from the fact that many of the films were packaged for TV as shock movies. Within the package included Dracula, Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, Son of Frankenstein, Night Monster, Dead Men's Eyes, just to name a few. Showing these films on television revived an interest in horror, which had fallen by the wayside during the 1950s when science fiction was all the rage. It is said that this revival led to the creation of Hammer Films, a British film studio that would go on to remake many of the Universal pictures in lavish color, specifically highlighting blood red. They wanted to show the gore, not just allude to it, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing would become the new Lugosi and Karloff. It was the success of shock theater, though, that would lead to horror hosts popping up out of the graves all across the U.S. However, the most popular and quite possibly the inventor of the horror host format is a man named John Zacherly, born September 26, 1918, in Philadelphia. Coincidentally, the city, your favorite little grave digger, rests. John would go by Roland and later become simply known as Zachary. He was described as a cadaverous fellow donning a pale ghoulish complexion, black frock coat, and would lurk around the TV set conducting experiments, much like the mad scientist featured in the films he showed on the program. At some point, he would be referred to as the Cool Ghoul, 
Known for the crime of stealing the best lines from horror films and operating on amoebas without a license, his television career would begin in Philadelphia on WCAU-TV on a program known as Action in the Afternoon, a 30-minute episode that consisted of a stranger coming to town. Zachary typically played a variety of roles on the program, including an undertaker. Based on this character, he was soon asked to host the station's shock theater. As he stated in the clip, we heard a little earlier, goblins and ghouls. Prior to his hosting duties, he had not watched any horror films due to his mother forbidding it. Of course, that would all change. In September of 1957, he would become Roland, hosting classic horror pictures from the 30s and 40s. His popularity rose quickly. He had only been hosting for three months when he asked viewers to send in three human hairs each as he wanted to make a pillow for his vampire wife's coffin. The station received over 23,000 letters. One could surmise that the New York TV station was impressed with the size of the hairball, as in 1958, they offered Zachary a role at their station. He would leave Philadelphia for New York and began to host at WABC-TV and be known as Zachary. By 1959, the TV station's ratings tripled, and Zachary had two time slots. Friday and Saturday evenings, and the show became entitled Zachary at Large. <laughs> at any rate, uh, we'll let turn the page here. We had some very exciting uh, evenings of uh, educational uh, uh, stuff, uh, lectures and so on. And I think uh, one of these things we're going to show you, we're doing an opera, very high-class stuff. And uh, in the end, of course, as usually happened at the end of the season, uh, from Dr. Bellevue, take me back to the booby hatch for the summer. <laughs> well, old Bellevue Hospital, grand old place in Philadelphia. So I, I think I've told you all I can uh, think about here. Uh, you, you, you will learn how, in the first film, you will learn how to uh, make a Dracula fizz. And I've been, I've been uh, living on those fizzes for many years. And that's why I'm able to be here, even though I'm not allowed to stand up for other reasons. Uh, I won't fall over. Dracula Fizz, I recommend that. It's something you can do at home. Most of the stuff I used to do, you please don't ever try at home. All right? <laughs> well, here's the first one from Philadelphia. So uh, hang on. It's in glorious black and white, and uh, it'll remind you of those old days way back before 1960 even happened. He became known for introducing the movies in a frenzied manner. He would have a deep, maniacal laugh and spoke to unseen characters such as his vampire wife, who he called my dear. She would make murmurs from her coffin. And then there was also Igor in Gasport. During the program, he would poke at a severed head in a basket, chase giant spiders, and operate on amoebas. He would perform dissections on a cauliflower that he referred to as a brain. One of his most frightful experiments consisted of him performing a surgery on a large amoeba that consisted of jello wrapped in cheesecloth that he would hack away at with a meat cleaver. He also made use of electricity, and as Zachary warned in the clip we heard earlier, there were experiments that should not be attempted at home. He once fried a Twinkie and even zapped a doll's head with a gizmo he created. It is quite thrilling to witness goblins and ghouls. With 
Tonight, Dracula. We've all seen the ghoul named Roland, but of my dear, only her hand. Could it be he has fear because Igor is near, that he won't show the rest of my dear? I am Roland, and that very interesting limerick you just heard was set to me by uh, Mrs. Uh, Irene Thompson of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I don't mind telling you that the joke is on you, Irene. <laughs> if my dear ever started getting restless, Igor would run around like a werewolf trapped in the sunlight. One of my favorite aspects of his horror hosting was that he would splice himself into films he was showing. He would do this to poke fun that many films were not worth watching, so he would cut himself into the scenes, stealing some of the best lines. The first film he did this was the 1935 flick, Black Cat, in which he pretended to be one of Boris Karloff's followers, who played a satanic priest in the film. Did you get the hotel? No. The phone's dead. You hear that, Petus? The phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. Fans of the show would send Zachary all sorts of odd and unusual things, such as animal brains, which often came from Butcher's children. Yuck. It was in 1958 when he would begin to be referred to as the Cool Ghoul, a nickname that was given to him by a close colleague, Philadelphia broadcaster Dick Clark. It was also in 1958 when Zachary Lee would obtain a record deal with Cameo Parkway Records and record his first hit single, Dinner with Drac. house by the sea. The orders were fine, but I choked on my wine when I learned that the main course was me. The song would land itself on the Billboard Top 10, which led him to make another album, which he would define as Transylvanian rock and roll, describing it as ghoul and drool music. The title would be Spook along with Zachary, with liner notes that stated, a loaf of bones, a jug of blood, beneath six feet of rich soil, any and all Transylvanian desires. At the height of his popularity, he would even run a campaign for president with the slogan, put a vampire in the White House. By 1963, he did begin to fade away. He would go on to what he referred to as a Transylvanian Dick Clark show, which was essentially a disco teen show that appeared on a TV station in Newark. By 1966, he became a radio DJ and in the 80s would appear as a guest on network Halloween specials. In 1989, he had a revival of sorts on ZTV that ran a weekly half-hour program that would show clips of upcoming horror and classic films. He was referred to as Mr. Z, a chap that inherited an old movie theater from a great aunt. With the creepy projection room, he would play host to guests such as puppet parodies of Siskel and Ebert, Toxie from the hit trauma film Toxic Avenger, 
and makeup artist Tom Savini. Zachary would make his feature film debut in the 1990 Frank Henenlotter flick Frankenhooker. Zachary would appear briefly in this film as a TV weatherman, which can't be missed. No matter how small the part, he always seemed to make an impression. And prior to this film, he appeared in a short flick Frank made entitled Geek Maggot Bingo in 1983 and was also a voice actor in Frank's film Damage in 1988. If you're interested in learning more about Zachary, I encourage you to find the book Television Horror Movie Hosts, written by Elena M. Watson, and to also check out The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs, specifically the episode that featured the film Pieces. This was part of his season in 2018. He does a touching tribute to John Zacherly and shares his own personal experience with the cool ghoul. Based on Joe Bob's emotional segment, I got the impression that Zacherly was quite a remarkable person. Tonight I'm going to tell you the story of the grand master of the undead creatures of darkness. Now I hope you're paying attention so that you can learn a thing or two. And I tell you the story of my old friend, Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> He is rightfully credited as the ghoul that started it all in terms of horror hosting. Of course, Vampira, who I paid respects to in my last episode, she hit the scene a few years prior, in 1954, her show primarily focused on a caricature that she created, and the film being more of an afterthought, whereas Zachary would focus more on the picture itself. Either way, they are two horror hosts that deserve our utmost respect, goblins and ghouls. Zachary lived until 98 years old, dying on October 27th, 2016. I'll leave you with the parting words that Zachary would end each of his segments with. Good night, whatever you are. And a clip from one of my favorite songs he recorded, Coolest Little Monster. Mwah. You're horrid, you're ghastly, and I love you true. So here are some presents I'm sending to you. I'll send a small box of smallpox A large tub of hubbub Your own noose for home use A crate full of hateful Cause you're the coolest little monster That ever put the spook on me I'll send a lipstick of arsenic One urn of sunburn Six cups of hiccups A bin full of sinful Cause you're the coolest little monster That ever put the spook on me Monster mine You haunt me all the time I'll be true I'm so in love with you Looby-dooby-dooby-dooby Eight pails of hangnails Some pass cards for graveyards A werewolf, a cheerwolf Some bat wings for earrings Cause you're the coolest little monster That ever put the spook on me My dear, you're ravishing Wherever did you dig up that dress? <laughs> And now, our feature presentation. All 
right, film pals. Time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. <laughs> Today's episode will mark the second entry in the series, Heavenly Mistakes. In this series, I will examine four films in which a grave mistake was made by the afterworld. In the first episode, I uncovered the 1941 fantasy romantic comedy Alexander Hall's Here Comes Mr. Jordan. This evening, we shall uncover and examine the 1946 Pal and Pressburger Technicolor film, A Matter of Life and Death, starring Kim Hunter, Roger Livesley, Raymond Massey, and today's corpse of interest, David Nevin. Come in, Lancaster. Are you bailing out? Yes, Jude, I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. What do you think the next world's like? I'll know soon enough anyway. I'm signing off now, Jude. Goodbye. It's heaven, isn't it? Peter couldn't have got away with it. He was due here half an hour after me. There's been a mistake. When the records don't balance, all the alarm bells start ringing in the records office. Oh, so there have been mistakes. We'll explain your grave error to squadron leader Carter and ask him to follow you. Oh, Peter, it was a cruel joke. If it was, it was on me. I've fallen in love because of your mistake. Well, if it's a respectable place, there must be a law of appeal. But this has never been done. I call squadron leader Peter D. Carter. You claim you love her. I do love her. Would you die for him? I would, but uh, I'd rather live. Different from the previous episode, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, in which a man ends up dead due to a grave mistake by a celestial being. In a matter of life and death due to an heir, Peter Carter, played by David Niven, is mistakenly left alive. Born March 1st, 1910 in London, England, David, although often claiming he was born in Scotland, as he thought it sounded more romantic, would go on to rack up 110 screen credits across film and television. David Niven would be known for his charming characters, snazzy attire, thin mustache, and slick hair. His first credited role would be in the 1935 picture, Without Regret, in which he played a character, Bill Gage. Prior to this, Niven attended the Royal Military College in Sandhurst in 1928. He would graduate in 1930 as second lieutenant in the British Army. He would eventually tire of the military life, in particular during an incident that involved a lengthy lecture that caused him to be late for his dinner date with an attractive young lady. At the end of the speaker's presentation, he asked the class if there were any questions, in which the rebellious David Niven asked, Could you tell me the time, sir? I have to catch a train. He would later be punished for this act of insubordination by being placed under confinement with a fellow guard. 
The two would finish a bottle of whiskey, and with his capture's assistance, Niven would escape through a first-floor window and headed for America, moving to New York City. Upon arrival, he would begin an unsuccessful career in whiskey sales and later a stint with a horse rodeo promotion in Atlantic City. Niven would finally make his way to Hollywood in 1934. His first snag upon arriving in Hollywood was learning that he would need a work permit in order to work in the U.S. Once he received his resident alien visa from the American consulate, he returned to the U.S. and was able to accept a position with Central Casting. It was his uncredited role in the 1935 picture, Mutiny on the Bounty, in which he is referred to on IMDb as an able-bodied seaman. That brought him to the attention of film producer Samuel Goldwyn, who signed Niven to a contract. This led him to landing roles throughout the late 1930s and being loaned out to such studios as 20th Century Fox and Warner. Something I found interesting, goblins and ghouls, in conducting my research, is that I learned that characters he played would often be named after real-life friends of his. In 1938, he would find himself in a starring role in the film The Dawn Patrol. He would see much success in the RKO romantic comedy in 1939, Bachelor Mother, in which he co-starred with Ginger Rogers. In 1939, Niven would return home to Britain when war was declared on Germany. He rejoined the British Army despite being advised to stay behind in the U.S. During his time in the military, Niven would work with the Army Film and Photographic Unit, which was part of the British Armed Forces, whose purpose was to record military events. It was initiated in 1941 and later disbanded in 1946. Shot on 35mm, the sound effects and commentary were added later, and these films would be used in newsreels shown at theaters. Many are now archived at the Imperial War Museum. David's film career would resume in 1946 when he agreed to play the lead role in a film we will be examining today, My Goblins and Ghouls, A Matter of Life and Death. After the completion of this film, he would leave England, returning to Hollywood. Niven struggled to find his place in Hollywood that he had prior to the war, but would have a comeback in the early 50s when he decided to give Broadway a try and starred in the play Nina with Gloria Swanson. This particular show ran for 45 performances and so happened to be seen by filmmaker Otto Preminger, who would go on to cast Niven in the 1953 film The Moon is Blue, which was based on a play. The flick being a sex comedy caused quite the stir with the production code and was released without their seal of approval. Of course, this led to it being a huge hit. However, it was in 1956 when Niven landed the role as Phileas Fogg in Around the World in 80 Days, in which he was then back on top as it was a huge box office hit. A little interesting tidbit, my goblins, is that David Niven is the only person to win an Academy Award at a ceremony in which he was hosting. In 1958, he would take home the Best Actor Award for his portrayal as Major Pollock in Separate Tables. This would be his only nomination and win for a role in which he only had 23 minutes of screen time for. Nominated for Best Performance by an Actor are Tony Curtis in The Defiant One. Paul Newman in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. David Niven in Separate Tables. Sidney Poitier in The Defiant Ones. Spencer Tracy in Old Man and the Sea. 
And the winner, Irene? <sighs> David Niven. <laughs> I'm so loaded down with good luck charms, I could hardly make it up the steps. <laughs> well, people have been saying thank you for Oscars for 30 years, and I have nothing to add except thank you. He also managed to write four books, including a 1971 autobiography, The Moon's a Balloon, and the 1975 Bring on the Empty Horses, which was a collection of tales from Hollywood's golden age of the 30s and 40s. Apparently, David was quite the gifted storyteller, often amusing many with his stories of the past although the accuracy of his book over time has been questioned, as it has been said some of the incidents being told from his perspective actually occurred to other people, among them Cary Grant. It was, however, in 1980 that David started feeling more fatigued, and there was a noticeable wavering in his voice when he appeared on talk shows and did interviews. He would later be diagnosed with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and would make his final appearance in Hollywood in 1981 at the American Film Institute, paying tribute to Fred Astaire. Over the course of his life, David would be married twice, both of which were courted quite hastily before walking down the aisle. His first wife, Primula Rollo, he would know for a mere 17 days, while his second wife, Jorda Skemberg, only for 10. He would have two children with his first wife, who unfortunately would pass away tragically at the age of 28. While playing hide-and-seek during a soiree at Tyrone Powers' home, she opened a door, which she thought was a closet, and instead was a steep set of stairs leading to the basement. She passed away the next day on May 21, 1946, leaving behind two sons, David Niven Jr. and Jamie Niven, who had only been born a few months earlier. After his first wife died tragically, it was Clark Gable that would comfort him after he too experienced the tragic death of his wife, Carol Lombard, who you can learn more about in episode 14, My Goblins and Ghouls. David would go on to marry his second wife in 1948, a Swedish actress and model. The couple adopted two daughters, Christina Niven and Fiona Niven. However, it was said that daughter Christina was actually from an affair Niven had with an 18-year-old model. It seemed the relationship with Genberg was anything but smooth, and many wondered why they were not divorced. In 1997, when she passed away, she left specific instructions not to be buried beside her husband, David, and instead was to be cremated with her ashes scattered in the Mediterranean. David Niven, however, passed 14 years earlier at the age of 73, on July 29, 1983, at a chalet in Switzerland. Coincidentally, the same day as his co-star, Raymond Massey, in A Matter of Life and Death would. At his funeral, it is said there was an extremely large wreath from one of the porters at Heathrow Airport, with the card that read, 
To the finest gentleman who ever walked these halls, he made a porter feel like a king. David would be buried at a local cemetery in Switzerland. But I think what I remember best in those days, and this was the days of Jean Harlow and Clark Gable and Garber and all these people, was the, the infinite generosity of the big stars to the beginners. They were kind to you? Oh, unbelievably kind. and couldn't wait to help you and couldn't wait to, to push you on and, and, and encourage you. Who particularly, though? I mean, can you name any particular? Oh, yes. Uh, Fred Astaire was one of my oldest... He is still. I saw him the other day. And Gable, indeed, was a great, great friend. They, always, they, they haven't always been good times for you, though, have they? And, uh, well, for who? I mean, everybody's mm. life is this. You know, it's this. But yours particularly at one time in movies did take a big dive. Oh, several times. Mm. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, oh, yes. I mean, I got fired by Goldwyn and I got... Oh, it happened to everybody. It does you good, too. Stairway to Heaven, or the original title, A Matter of Life and Death, opens with beautiful, colorful title cards. The film was shot in Technicolor and is such a treat for the eyes, goblins and ghouls. Text reads that this is the story of two worlds, the one we know and another which exists only in the mind of a young airman whose life and imagination have been violently shaped by war. The film does not waste any time getting started, thrusting us right into the story in which a character, Peter Carter, played by David Niven, finds himself on May 2, 1945, in a badly damaged plane without a parachute. Radio dispatcher, an American gal named June, played by Kim Hunter, receives what is initially believed his last transmission. Are you receiving me? Repeat, are you receiving me? Request your position. Come in Lancaster. You seem like a nice girl. I can't give you my position. Instruments gone, crew gone too. All except Bob here, my sparks. He's dead. The rest all bailed out on my orders. Time 0335. You get that? Crew bailed out 0335. Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A, G for George. Send them a signal. Got that? Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A, Apple, G, George. They'll be sorry about Bob. We all liked him. Hello, G, George. Hello, G, George. Are you all right? Are you going to try to land? You want to fix? Name's not G. George, it's P. Peter. Peter D. Carter. D's for David. Squadron leader Peter Carter. No, I'm not going to land. Undercarriage is gone. Inner port's on fire. I'm bailing out presently. I'm bailing out. Take a telegram. Got your message. Received your message. We can hear you. I've seen this movie a few times, and what always strikes me is how calm and collected Peter is about dying. His plane is going down in a fiery blaze. He has no parachute and most likely is about to be burned alive, yet he continues to have just ordinary banter with June. Well, somewhat ordinary. June? Yes, June, I'm bailing out. I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. Uh, hello, hello, Peter, do not understand. Hello, hello, Peter, can you hear me? Hello, June. Don't be afraid. It's quite simple. We've had it, and I'd rather jump than fry. After the first thousand feet, what's the difference? I shan't know anything anyway. I say, I hope I haven't frightened you. No, I'm not frightened. Good girl. You Sparks, you said he was dead. Hasn't he got a shoot? Captain Ribbons, cannon shell. June, are you pretty? Not bad. I... Can you hear me as well as I hear you? Yes. You've got a good voice. You've got guts, too. It's funny, I've known dozens of girls. I've been in love with some of them, but an American girl whom I've never seen and who I never shall see will hear my last words. That's funny. It's rather sweet. June, if you're around when they pick me up, turn your head away. Perhaps we can do something, Peter. Let me report it. 
No, no one can help. Only you. Let me do this in my own way. I want to be alone with you, June. Where were you born? In Boston. Mass? Yes. That's a place to be born. History was made there. Are you in love with anybody? No, no, don't answer that. I could love a man like you, Peter. I love you, June. Your life and I'm leaving you. Where do you live? On the station? No, in a big country house about five miles from here. Lee Wood House. Old house? Yes, very old. Good, I'll be a ghost and come and see you. You're not frightened of ghosts, are you? It'll be awful if you were. <laughs> I'm not this entire sequence shows the magic of Powell and Pressburger. From the dialogue to the cinematography, these two were movie magicians. Okay, so Peter should have died, but Conductor 71, the guide of sorts that was sent to escort Peter to the afterlife, lost him in the thick of the fog over the English Channel, which causes Peter to wake up on the beach, which just so coincidentally happens to be near the base that June is stationed. Initially, Peter thinks he has crossed to the other side. That is, until he runs into June as she is cycling back to her home after working the night shift. I think it goes without saying, it was love at first sight. You're Peter. How did you get here? I'm glad you're safe. What did you do? What happened? Don't know. I just don't know. Are you hurt? My head feels a bit queer. Oh, there's a little cut in your hair. It's nothing much. Oh, Peter, it was a cruel joke. If it was, it was on me. I've been crying so ever since we say goodbye. Don't cry, darling. Oh, Peter, darling. Meanwhile, in heaven, which I have to remark here, goblins and ghouls, I love the decision from Pal and Pressburger to shoot the afterlife in black and white, while the living world is in lush, vivid color. It is such an interesting choice, and in my opinion, absolutely fitting, for when we die, the color is drained. With that said, Heaven is a rather intriguing place, as portrayed in this film. The production design is glorious, in particular the stairway leading to the afterlife. This was essentially a huge escalator that linked the living world to the afterlife, and was known on set as Ethel. Ethel had 106 steps. Each were about 20 feet wide, and the entire apparatus took about three months to make. I also quite enjoy that when someone arrives in heaven, they are given wings in a plastic garment bag. It's just perfect. I must also note that the creepy yet soothing sound design in heaven is perfectly haunting. I also love the woman that greets people in heaven. She explains to Peter's cohort that mistakes don't happen here. Yet, there was a mistake over a thousand years ago. So I guess they do indeed happen. But she explains that when something's wrong, the alarm bells will ring. The girl that was here before me, she was here 640 years. Holy smoke! She said when the records don't balance, all the alarm bells start ringing in the records office. <laughs> I bet they do. Proper flap, eh? Yes. That's only the living records. Everyone on Earth has a file. Russian, Chinese, black or white, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat. Holy smoke. If anybody told me the clerks were working away up here, just like on Earth. Everyone here is allowed to start how they like. It's heaven, isn't it? You see? There are millions of people on Earth who would think it heaven to be a clerk. And don't say holy smoke. Why not? There's no smoke without fire. 
And we don't call smoke holy. Sign here. Oh, all right. I don't want to start those bells ringing. An invoice shows that there were 91,716 invoiced, but only 91,715 delivered. I love the writing on this invoice. If there is a heaven or an afterlife, I would like to believe that they have the most superior selection of stationery, pencils, and pens. And for those that personally don't know your favorite little grave digger, well, goblins and ghouls, I have quite a fondness for writing instruments. So who's to blame for this heaven mishap? Well, that would be Conductor 71, a French aristocrat that was guillotined in the Revolution and is played by a charismatic Marius Goring, who has now been informed that he will need to go back to correct his grave heir. This won't be easy, goblins and ghouls, for our lad Peter has fallen in love, which, as they say in heaven, complicates things. Nineteen hours and fifty minutes have elapsed. Don't you know that any slip must be reported immediately? I lost my head. Not long in the service. I joined in the so-called second germinal of the so-called glorious French Revolution. I see. Natural death. I lost my head. The case is not so simple. No? No. He's fallen in love. Ah. Oh. It complicates things. True, madame. You must do your best. Oui, madame. You'll proceed to Earth immediately. Oui, madame. You'll explain your grave error to Squadron Leader Carter. Oui, madame. And ask him to follow you. Oui, madame. Wait. Your captain is not an unreasonable man, I hope. The skipper? Oh, no, ma'am. Unless he's had a few, of course. When Conductor 71 arrives on Earth, he is now in color. Bathed in lush technicolor to be exact, everything on Conductor 71 pops. I love this character's wardrobe, complete with cane, fashionable hat, monocle, and flower on his lapel. I love that he acknowledges his newfound color by saying, one is starved for technicolor up there, meaning in heaven. Apparently, this line was improvised by the actor, but Michael Powell decided to keep it in. So Conductor 71 finds Peter and June on a picnic of sorts. Oh, poor Peter. He thought everything was just peachy keen. Now that this French aristocrat, Conductor 71, shows up to reign on the picnic, he explains the air and that Peter will have to come with him. Of course. Peter is not pleased with this decision, and the two begin to argue, which inevitably leads to him requesting an appeal. What kind of government do you oh, represent? I, I do not represent any government. Or what laws govern the place you come from? I am not permitted to express any political views. Well, if it's a respectable place, there must be a law of appeal. But my friend, be reasonable. Appeal to whom? That's for you to find out. But this has never been done. Is that any reason why it can't be done now? You are determined to get me into the salad. And what about the salad you got me into? Now, look here. You don't want me to use force, do you? Well, you can always try. Conductor 71 departs and agrees to ask his superiors for an appeal. Something to note is that while Conductor 71 and Peter are having their chat, the rest of the living world stops. Therefore, June is not aware of the visit. And when the conductor leaves, life reanimates. It's as if no time has passed at all. So when Peter tries to explain the visit he just had, well, he sounds like he might be a bit off his rocker. He expresses to June that while she was asleep, 
They sense someone, and he begins to question how he even survived the crash in the first place. He didn't have a parachute. June decides she needs to pay a visit to a friend, the village doctor, Frank Reeves, and requests that the doctor visit Peter. The doctor pays Peter a visit and begins with a series of questions, asking if he has headaches, and they discuss the hallucination of Conductor 71. Dr. Frank Reeves is played by Roger Livesley, who has such a calming demeanor and presence. It is apparent that he really wants to help Peter, and he listens to his yarn and does not question it. It is decided that Peter will come to the doctor's home, as he would like to meet this chap, Conductor 71, the next time he appears. Now, this heavenly messenger, you saw him quite clearly. I told you, as clear as I see you. And this smell, you imagined, was it at the same time? Yes, it was particularly strong. Was it a pleasant smell? Yes. Could you place it? <laughs> Fried onions. And this uh, messenger, he hasn't turned up again? No, but he will. When? He picks his own time and stops it. Oh, Peter's lodged an appeal. Against what? Against his collar. That's the spirit. Don't give in. I won't. I'm lucky that June knew you, Doctor. Thank you for coming. June has lucky friends. I've got bad news for you. Then why the grin? You're going with me. Where to? To my house, for two reasons. First, I want to meet this chap next time he drops in. Second, I like a nice girl around the house, and she only comes to see me to borrow a book. And she's a slow reader. I had learned that Michael Powell, in particular, wanted the film to be based on hard medical facts, and he did quite a bit of research about brain injuries and those that suffered from these type of injuries in the war. Apparently, a nurse ended up writing a book about how accurate the depiction was in this film, which I found interesting to note, my goblins and ghouls. Now, what Dr. Reeves derives from Peter's story is that he is in a metaphorical battle for his own life. He believes that to Peter, Conductor 71 is indeed real, and that Peter is suffering from a brain injury. Based on this, Dr. Reeves would like to schedule him for surgery. Now, while at his home, he instructs Peter that if he were to be paid a visit by Conductor 71, that he were to ring this little bell, as the doctor would like to have a bit of a chat with the conductor. The doctor and June go to play a round of ping pong while Peter is left to rest in the other room. Conductor 71 does come with good news. I have good news for you. Good. You are to be allowed to appeal to the High Court. Splendid. The trial will be a full dress affair. Très chic. In three days to give you time to prepare your case. Better and better. <laughs> Do not be too pleased. Why is there a catch? The prosecuting counsel. Of course, I am not permitted to offer advice or give a personal opinion, but... Well, who is this prosecuting counsel? Be prepared. For what? A shock. Well, come on, tell me the worst. Who is it? Abraham Farlon. Come again? Abraham Farlan. Well, I never heard of him. No, never in my life. He lives in Boston. I've never been in Boston. Massachusetts. I've never been there. Abraham Farlon died in Boston in 1775. Does that date convey anything to you? Lexington, Concord? Exactly. You are good at history. The American War of Independence. Oh, he was killed? By a British bullet. Oh. Peter should have his appeal. He is able to pick anyone that has died to defend him. This causes quite the strain for him. He needs to choose wisely, as he is told the judge in his case was shot by an Englishman, meaning that the deck is stacked against the British, Peter. Peter explains the conditions to the doctor and June, and explains how the appeal will work. 
Dr. Reeves grows more concerned when he learns that Peter suffered from a concussion two years ago and feels that this surgery is needed immediately. Now, how about getting to bed? Now, I want to talk to you first. It's important. No, not now. Have a long sleep. Tomorrow you'll feel as fresh as a daisy. It's about my counsel. I don't think you believe a word of what I say. Of course we do. My dear friend, here on Earth, I'm your defending counsel, and as your counsel, I believe everything you tell me. Oh, Dr. Gutt. Why, hello, Dr. Reeves. You make your rounds the hard way. Give me a coop any time. Is Dr. McEwen free? He's just going to operate. Oh. He hasn't started yet. I'll tell him. I imagine he'll see you in the washroom. Thanks. Speaking of doctors, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's venture to the morgue, shall we, to chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Kim Hunter, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. How are you doing on this foggy evening? Oh, I'm very well. I'm just arranging some fresh flowers in a vase in the morgue. I do like to have some signs of spring here. Yeah, I suppose I do too. But I will say, just entering this place, it seems to give me a chill down my spine. It must be from the excitement. I'm just so happy to be here with you, Dr. Carruthers. Oh, well, welcome. I don't get many visitors for some reason, so I always have time to talk. Well, that's great. Who do you have on the slab tonight, old chap? And hey, you just celebrated another trip around the sun, so I feel it is now okay to call you old chap. Well, you are right, but rest assured, I am still quite youthful. Oh, did you bring me a birthday gift? Yes. (laughs) I'll, I'll retrieve it from the grave when we're all finished here. When we're finished. Okay, well, for now, tonight we have the co-star of A Matter of Life and Death, Kim Hunter. But strictly speaking, he's a rough case. He's not a case at all. He's a person, a very fine person. And I want you to see him, Frank. I don't want just anybody mauling him about and asking him questions. I want you. I'm sure the RAF would say I know what the RAF would say. I had to talk to his CEO this morning. Oh, Frank. And I had to talk to his group medical officer, too. Fortunately, he's heard of me. Oh, Frank. And if you'd done that earlier, I would have told you earlier, you can't go around the place kidnapping good-looking RAF officers just because you like the shape of their nose. It's not his nose. It's his voice. I fell for that before I ever saw him. He still believes that he bailed out without a parachute. Yes. And he has hallucinations. Mm Mm-hmm. And during these bouts, does he go rather pale? Yes, yes, he did. And he has headaches here. I think so. I don't know. You better ask him. But he definitely sees things. And hears. All right. Did you tell him he was talking rubbish? No. Quite right. He's not talking rubbish. He's talking very logically. Then he can't be in love. Bye. Frank. Yes? He has a very cute nose, too. I'll be over about tea time. I have to admit, this is a corpse that I'm not too familiar with. In looking at her filmography, which I was 
quite astonished it includes 139 credits. And I've only seen her in a handful of movies, such as A Streetcar Named Desire, which she did win a Best Supporting Actress award for as her role as Helen. And I have seen her in The Planet of the Apes as Zira, which honestly, I didn't even know it was her until I was looking into her filmography. But the movie that did catch my eye was her film debut that I've been meaning to check out actually since I believe you wrote about it in the noir issue for Movie John, Seventh Victim. Yes, that is a fantastic Val Luton produced film. It's actually one of my top 10 favorites, I'd say. So in it, Kim Hunter plays a woman, uh, a young woman who's searching for her sister who's mysteriously gone missing in Greenwich Village in New York. And she learns that she may have gotten involved with a devil-worshipping cult. It's eye-opening, it's bold, and it's rather bleak. And it's it's just a movie that floored me, especially because of Kim's earnest performance. Our director, Mark Robeson, it was his first directorial job. He'd been an editor in films, so he'd been involved in films, certainly, but it was his first time directing, so he was nervous, too. And the two of us kind of clung to each other. And your producer, you mentioned, who helped get your name, Val... Val Luton was marvelous. What made him so? What was he like? Well, so oddly, was known as the king of the horror films, <laughs> was one of the gentlest, kindest, kindest men in the world, but also had an ex- a very specific idea about horror films in that he didn't want it all on screen. He wanted to suggest it on screen and let the audience create the horror I mean, such as, instead of seeing a lot of blood and what have you and people killing each other, instead maybe a drop of blood coming out from under a door (laughs) to give a person an idea of what was going on on the inside. Let the audience imagine it. I guess you call it a horror film. Anyway, our producer, Val Luton, was known as the king of the horror films because all of the films, he was very involved in the script writing of all the films that he produced, such as The Cat People... I Walked with a Zombie, uh, The Leopard Man, ours, The Seventh Victim. Uh, there was a whole list of them that he did. All of them, and his idea being that the horror should be created by the audience, not put blandly on the screen. All the blood and all of that, no. Uh, the most he would do would be maybe a little drop of blood coming out from under a door so that the audience would then imagine they would create what was going on behind the door. He was, oh, he was marvelous. Dear, dear man. His aunt, you know, was Alena Tsimova, the uh, marvelous old Russian actress. Yeah, I believe it is actually now playing on the Criterion channel, so before it goes away, I definitely have to move it up in my watch queue. Because like I said, Ever since you wrote about it in the noir issue, it intrigued me. Uh, Anyways, why don't we get to slicing her open? Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, her versatility. She could play sympathetic roles or characters exhibiting long-suffering. Number two, 
she was feisty. She was known to say that she had no use for the trappings of Hollywood stardom, and once said, I was never in for this jazzy stardom, and as far as that's concerned, I've never had it. Doesn't matter to me. Number three, she was a civil rights activist. Number four, she was outspoken. She was one of the few Hollywood voices that disagreed with awarding Mr. Kazan a special Oscar in 1999, as he never apologized for naming names during the blacklist days. And number five, she was dedicated to the craft. She took her job seriously and always put in the background work. Wow, she really seemed like an incredible person and had quite an eclectic career from what I saw. I read that part of the reason she disappeared was from film was due to getting caught in Hollywood's effort to blacklist those that were communist supporters in the 50s. Yeah, I watched an interview with her where she spoke about what that time period and experience was like. And she had a lot of intelligent things to say, how many of the folks who are blacklisted were really just trying to stand up for civil rights, regardless of race or ethnicity or beliefs. And I especially liked when she said that life is gray, it's not black and white. And I really admire that balanced outlook of life because there is not one way to live. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Theater was affected last perhaps in the blacklist, but certainly affected. But your career in terms of television and movies was halted for Yes, thank God, I could still work in theater. In fact, one of the plays, Darkness at Noon, written by Sidney Kingsley, he was terrified that people would think he was pro-communist since it was about communism and about the Russians to the extent that he'd written a much better play than he directed it. He was so afraid people wouldn't get, uh, or that people would get a point that he was not making, uh, that he had to make everything black and white no grays in there at all, which was such a shame because life is gray. It's not black and white. <laughs> and speaking of black and white, you weren't called to the committee to ever testify? Oh, or, no. Okay. No. But you were blacklisted and, and then... Oh, and I worked for, in a Lillian Hellman play and, you know, oh, come off it. It was an insane period. It had a, a terrible impact, I think, on the entire country, not just on television and films. I mean, even... Um, uh, the church was, was uh, hit terribly by the blacklist. Uh, colleges, uh, professors having to swear that they, haven't, they are not and never have been a communist. When, uh, at a time when, at a time now, it isn't against the law to become a member of the Communist Party. And of course, most of the people who were blacklisted had nothing to do with the party. They had to do with... Uh, trying to make our world a better sense, get civil rights organized, I mean, so that um, the color of your skin should not determine what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do in this country. Yeah. It's, uh, it was a terrible, terrible period. And here we had the KKK in small numbers marching in Manhattan last week, but do you think something like the blacklist could ever happen again here? Of course it could. Uh, when groups of people become large enough to feel that my way is the only way, they can exert that kind of pressure. Mm. 
I'm thinking of, well, I shouldn't, I suppose, say it, but I mean, like the Christian Coalition goes crazy every now and then, as if their way is the only way. A group like that, like that, I'm not saying it would, but it could establish another, uh, if you're not on my side, you're wrong, you don't belong here. And what I could find out about her, she seemed to really enjoy acting. Like you said, she took the job seriously. And she started to act in elementary school and apparently was never one to turn down a role. So she took on smaller roles in B-movies or long stretches in theater or television. And I really enjoy her character in Matter of Life and Death because she comes off to me as a lady that has it together, so to speak. Her character, June, really struck me as someone that is independent and free thinking. What did you think about her? Yeah, I agree. That's my favorite thing about her character. And in fact, many of the characters that she's played. She's not meek and scared to enter risky situations, especially if it is to help someone she loves. And it actually seems like Kim herself was very much the same. She was quick to stand up for what she believed, but not in a way that was closed off to other possibilities or other opinions. And that's a kind of balance that comes from free thinking, I, I believe. Oh, most definitely. Uh, so did you ever hear how she got her part in A Matter of Life and Death? I have not. Do tell. Well, legend says that during a visit to Hollywood in 1945, Michael Powell, one of the directors, decided to cast her due to a recommendation from Alfred Hitchcock. Kim Hunter was quite unknown at the time, and Hitch actually found out about her because during a screen test for Notorious, she was heard off screen feeding lines to actors that were actually doing the screen tests. And I guess from hearing her voice and, you know, I guess how she was performing, Hitch felt that she would fit the all-American girl that Pal and Pressburger were looking for. And I agree, she was cast perfectly. Oh, wow. I love that story. That's great. Thank you, Hitch. And I agree with you. She has that quality where I always believe the earnestness of her character. She may not be a superstar, and that's what makes it great, and that's why I like her to me, because I, I wouldn't want to see anyone else in this role. Yeah, I I agree with that as well. I mean, she just seems like an everyday person and someone that mm-hmm. you can relate to. Yeah. Something I loved learning about her role in A Matter of Life and Death was that for the ping pong scene, she actually trained with a British ping pong champion, Alan Brooke. And then for good luck, while she was shooting the scene, she actually borrowed one of his tournament paddles. And I just think that's, it's fun. <laughs> I love that. I, I love her dedication to learn. It, it kind of makes me think of, I always notice every scene in film or TV where someone is playing an instrument. And in about one second, I can see that they haven't even tried to learn what might be natural movements for what they're doing. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine as a musician. So I appreciate that she put forth the effort. And you know, that makes me think. I wonder if I could get a table in here. Maybe use some slabs? What do you think? I think the slabs would be quite suitable. Yes, and mm-hmm. I do enjoy a round of ping pong every now and again. Well, maybe next time. Yeah, that would be really fun. And as I mentioned earlier, she 
Kim Hunter had a lot of work in TV, and I didn't realize she was in one of my favorite programs, Rockford Files. And now I need to go back and watch. Apparently it was season five, episode 19. And I know you don't watch a lot of Rockford Files, but I do know that you watch Columbo, and she was apparently in an episode of that TV series, episode four, season one. Yes, I love that episode. Suitable for framing, it's called. It involves a priceless art collection, a greedy man who acts like a baby. He's truly a jerk and one of the worst Columbo characters. And our very own Kim Hunter being framed for murder. It has one of my all-time favorite Columbo endings. And fun fact, Mary Wicks is also in that episode. Oh, that is so cool, because Mary Wicks was one of our former character corpses from episode 21. Yes. Another thing that I did find quite interesting is that her birth name was actually Janet Cole, but she changed her name to Kim after a suggestion from David O'Selznick, who signed her to an acting contract. And apparently, an RKO secretary recommended the last name Hunter. I'm always fascinated by how many actors have changed their names. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I know a lot of folks, my family included, changed their last names to assimilate after immigration, but it's interesting when there are changes like this that are just, you know, for the sound of the name. Kim Hunter does have a good ring to it, I think. I'm satisfied with my real name, Dr. Carruthers. Oh, of course. I mean, who wouldn't want to share the name with such a distinguished scientist who created amazing formulas for bats? (laughs) Anyways, I believe you have seen the Planet of the Apes films. I really just cannot get over her role in those movies. I I learned it was extremely difficult to act in that makeup she wore. I mean, honestly, with the amount of makeup, I didn't even realize it was her. Yeah. But as you were saying earlier, like she had such a dedication to her craft. Apparently, her and Roddy McDowell actually visited local zoos so they could study the apes and learn their mannerisms and just like how they interacted basically then came back and practiced in front of mirrors so they could get like the speaking correct and then later taught other cast members and kim recalled later that it was just extremely hard to breathe with all of that makeup on i can't even imagine no me neither it is a lot i would have never known it was her under there i haven't seen any of those movies for a long time but i went back and looked at some pictures and yep never would have known yeah and i can't even imagine too because under like the hot lights because cinema lights are extremely hot she must have just been dying good morning dr zira good morning julius how's our patient today no change the minute you open the door he goes into his act What do we want this morning? Do we want something? Come on, speak. Come on, speak. Do we want some sugar, old-timer? You could get hurt doing that, Doctor. Oh, don't be silly. He's perfectly tame. Uh, They're all tame until they take a chunk out of you. Well, bright eyes. 
Is our throat feeling better? I purchased a box set of the Planet of the Eight movies a while back because it was really inexpensive. Like, I think it was like $15. And I was like, Nice. Yeah, I was like, why not? Because Ben and I, my husband, have a lot of space here. So storing movies is not a problem. And I've watched a few of them, but I still find the ending of the first movie to be incredibly haunting. The first time I watched it, I, I had no idea about the ending. And it, it really sat with me. Yeah, for sure. How did she pass on? Well... Kim Hunter died in New York City on September 11, 2002, of a heart attack at the age of 79. She was cremated and her ashes were given to her daughter. I really do hope she felt like she had a full life. You know, I'm quite excited to visit her in some of her old TV programs that she was in. And I feel like it'll be somewhat of a Where's Waldo type scenario, except with Kim, obviously. Yeah, you're right. I'm looking forward to checking out this soap opera that she was nominated for, The Edge of Night. It sounds like a Perry Mason type thing. And you know, I'll let you in on a little secret. I do enjoy a soap during my lunch break here in the morgue. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) I will say The Edge of Night is an amazing title that... I totally want to look into this now and learn more. I hear ya. Well, I think it's time to grab the blankie, what do you say, and tuck her in for her eternal nap. Thank you for joining us, Kim. Hope you return to restful sleepies. Good night. (laughs) Good night. (laughs) Oh, that makes me laugh. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed that brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of A Matter of Life and Death, starring the corpse of interest, David Niven. Peter finds himself on a stairway going up to heaven. Is it a dream of sorts? Which made me think of my own dreams my fellow crypt dwellers. Sometimes I feel within our dreams, we are able to travel to the other side. How about you? I'd like to believe this is how we see our loved ones, those that have departed. I'm not sure if they are in a limbo state or just drop by for a visit. I've seen my grandmother once and she held my pup, little Foxy, a pup she unfortunately never got to meet. But in my dream, she remarked to me, what a cute rat. And well, goblins and ghouls, hearing that makes me believe that maybe she did indeed hold Foxy, because that is exactly something she would have said. And why am I being taken up this stairway? I'm not being taken for a ride, am I, by any chance? What is suggestion? Take that bit of barley sugar away. I don't like it, I don't like your suggestions. I think I'll go back before it's too late. Peter! 
When Peter wakes from his dream of sorts, he is now in an ambulance, headed to surgery. Well, goblins and ghouls, luck just isn't on Peter's side. Dr. Reeves, who is supposed to operate on him, unfortunately is involved in a fatal motorcycle crash while en route to find an ambulance to take Peter to the hospital. The accident was foreshadowed earlier in the film, when Dr. Reeves was witnessed riding his cycle rather recklessly. Have I mentioned how much I love Pal and Pressburger, better known as the Archers? They were the dynamic duo of filmmaking that collaborated 24 times over the span of 1939 until 1972. Without a doubt, these two chaps have easily landed on my must-grab-coffee-in-the-afterlife list. Maybe someday I shall share the rest of my list with you, my goblins and ghouls. You can guarantee that Pal and Pressburger will definitely be appearing on this program in the future. Now with Dr. Reeves deceased, this means he is now able to act as Peter's counsel. Frankly, you could not find a better chap to represent you. We head back to Peter's surgery, which we pay witness to some amazing camera work in these few next sequences. Peter is on a gurney and there is a point of view shot of what he is seeing. However, one of my absolute favorite shots is when we witness Peter's eyeball closing when they put him under for his surgery. This also signifies his travel to the other side. There is something to take note here, goblins and ghouls. When Peter does travel to the other side, we see him dressed in the clothes that he was supposed to die in. This got me thinking. Maybe I should be wearing a cape at all times, as I don't want to get caught dead in an ascot. Mwah. Dr. Reeves is waiting outside the surgery room, accompanied by a former army friend of Peter's, Bob. Time is once again frozen, and they discuss his defense and their plan for the trial. Peter recites a beautiful prose regarding his love for June and that he can't imagine being without her. While looking at June, who is standing outside the surgery room, he notices a tear that is running down her cheek. Look at her. Holy smoke. Well, she, she looks like a nice girl. She is a nice girl. Hardly your type, Skip. I've fallen in love with her. Her accent is foreign, but it sounds sweet to me. We were born thousands of miles apart, but we were made for each other. That's an excellent piece of prose. Sorry. Nothing to be ashamed of. May I kiss her, just in case, you know? Okay, you may, but she will not know it. Doesn't matter. Oh, he's English. What is the good of kissing a girl if she does not feel it? Look. What? The evidence you wanted. Her tears. Oh, I wish I could take one with me. You are counsel. You can do as you wish. I say, why don't we wrap it up and take it with us? Permit me. When they arrive at the celestial court, it is Reeves who stands up to the court on Peter's behalf. He explains to them that due to their mistake, Peter was given additional time on Earth, which led him to falling in love, which has led to a commitment that should take precedence over the afterlife's claim on his life. The judge, played by Raymond Massey, someone I absolutely adore in Arsenic and Old Lace, when he plays Jonathan, a character that is mistaken for Boris Karloff. Dr. Reeves challenges the judge over the composition of the jury, so in fairness, the jury is replaced with a more diverse population. 
It is also decided that June must take the stand. So they take the staircase back to the living and are submerged into color once more. The production design, again, on this film is absolutely fantastic and surreal. Conductor 71 puts June to sleep so that she can take the stand, which leads to one of the most emotional and touching scenes of the film. Can you prove that you love him? How can I? Would you be willing to die for him? Yes. Would you take his place in the balance sheet? Yes. Don't believe her. Would you? My lord. Stand aside, sir. You've got no right to argue. How dare you address me like that? Peter, you must obey. Well, of all the dirty tricks. This is contempt of court. I'll have you committed. Commit away. Don't answer any more questions. Do you realize that by this attitude, you've forfeited any chance of winning your case? All right, but you won't get June as well. Your Honor, members of the jury, I'm afraid he really does love her. Your witness. Well, my goblins and ghouls, I think if you want to know what happens next, you should probably watch the film. Mwah. In my recent rewatch of A Matter of Life and Death, I took the time to visit some of the special features on my Criterion desk. One of these features is an interview with famed Academy Award-winning editor, Thelma Schoenmacher, who had previously been married to Michael Powell from 1984 until his death in 1990. This interview was such a great insight into the film, particularly concerning the cinematography and the overall methods of the archers. The cinematographer on the film was Jack Cardiff, who shot the Pal and Pressburger film Black Narcissus. He was trained in the Technicolor studios and made the magic of the fades from Technicolor to black and white within a matter of life and death become a reality. The black and white scenes were shot on a three-strip Technicolor stock using Technicolor cameras. No color dyes were used in processing the film, giving it a pearlescent look not seen in other monochrome pictures. Thelma goes on to explain how tedious they were about their work and that everything was planned and thought out, explaining, their movies cost what people spend on coffee in a major motion picture today, and I'm not kidding. Pal and Pressburger worked magic on the screen, creating films that were far ahead of their time. Through the interview with Thelma, it really got me thinking more about the movie. Is it all just a hallucination? Or is this actually happening to Peter? The filmmakers allow us to decide, and the art direction is so imaginative that it makes us question, what is reality? One of my favorite moments of the interview with Thelma was towards the end, in seeing how emotional she got in speaking about the film, relating her own relationship with Michael to that of Peter and June, saying that they would have given up their lives for one another just like the characters. She then ends the interview by saying that the movie is about love. Goblins and ghouls, Pal and Pressburger were one in a million, and I'm so glad they left behind such beautiful films for us to watch. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in checking out the movie, it is available from the Criterion Collection. In my next episode, I will continue the series of Heavenly Mistakes by examining the 1947 film Down to Earth, I will uncover the corpse of Rita Hayworth and be joined once again by my fellow classic coroner, Vampire's cousin, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy character corpse, Edward Everett Horton. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or anywhere you snag pods. 
Give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. Take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. So leave a review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or via postal mail. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. You can write to Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. My only request is that you don't send me any animal brains. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. And if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. And because I don't like to sleep, you can find your favorite little gravedigger on yet another show with my fellow filmmaking pal, Katie McBrown, on the show entitled Best Friends Forever. Each episode, we invite you to our slumber party where we gab about a movie featuring the heartthrob of the month. All of these shows are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, which you can find more information about at moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print quarterly movie publication. Our spring 2021 issue is now shipping to mailboxes everywhere. This quarter's theme is foreign to me. Gain a new perspective within the pages of Movie John, available for purchase now at moviejohn.com shop. now time to close the coffin. Now before I get to my own epitaph, like I typically do, I would like to share that I am not alone in my quest for the perfect tombstone quote. According to Thelma Schumacher, Michael Powell also plotted and planned his gravestone quote, which inevitably ended up being film director and optimist, which I find to be quite acceptable, goblins and ghouls. Now here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph my tombstone quote, compliments of Dr. Frank Reeves. Tell me, do you believe in the survival of human personality after death? Well, goblins and ghouls, why don't you knock on my coffin and you'll find out. Mwah. Goodbye, film pals. (laughs)